G'day Footyology listeners, Roko here. Enjoy our podcast? Well, you can become an official Footyology podcast supporter simply by using the supporter feature through ACAST. There's no subscription or regular commitment, just the sheer satisfaction that comes with knowing you've kept the debt collectors from our door. No, just kidding. It does help though. If you want to get started, you just need to follow the support this show link in the show description. Thanks again. And now let's get on with it. Welcome to Footyology with Rowan Connolly and Mark Fine. Good day, everyone. Welcome to the Footyology podcast, episode six, Going Great Guns, I'm told. And uh, so is this AFL season. We've now completed all the home and away rounds, all set for finals, albeit after a week off. And uh, a suitably exciting season, I reckon it's fair to say, came to a suitably exciting conclusion Everything's still up in the air until about one minute to go in the final of 198 home and away games. So we've got lots to get through tonight. Uh, joined by my regular sparring partner, Mark Fine. G'day, Finey. Sparring partner, good uh, choice of words given what we saw on the weekend. A sparring session, the half a billion dollar sparring session between Mayweather and McGregor. Well, I didn't see it, I was watching the footy. Yeah, suitably uh, uninteresting, but... As you said, the AFL season, that went right down to the wire and I guess uh, for Melbourne supporters, cruel, cruel was the afternoon because uh, I think they'd admit that uh, they put themselves in harm's way with a terrible performance against the Magpies but then sat back and watched the West Coast Eagles look like they were going to make it comfortably and then with 10 minutes to go, Melbourne were back in the eight. Now, it was an amazing finish. Uh, we'll talk about that. A lot of other things to get through besides. Let's not muck around. Let's get straight into it. On Footyology, that's a wrap. Well, an incredible finish to the season, really. Um, Melbourne made it hard for themselves and a uh, very anxious final day of the season. And, of course, desperately disappointed. They end up missing out on finals by 0.49 of a percent. It's pretty heartbreaking stuff for the Ds, isn't it? It is, and... Uh... Look, they only have themselves to blame. They Mm. played Collingwood. They got jumped. Collingwood had six goals on the board before Melbourne had six tackles. Now, you need to come to that game with a finals type of attitude. And their performance across the field was so uneven. Whereas Petrarca looked like he could grab the game by the scruff of the neck and win it on his own accord. Other players looked like they were playing JLT. So... I think Melbourne supporters almost consigned to the fact that it was going to be bad news on Sunday afternoon, then had to go through the heartbreak of the seesawing ride that wasn't West Coast winning. They always look like winning, but that percentage situation was tricky. And you know what was interesting to me? Now, this wouldn't have come to play for West Coast, but West Coast Eagles now meet Port Adelaide in the first week of the finals. Mm. A far better prospect than meeting Sydney. And they were they were starting to flirt with winning by enough to actually uh, go above Essendon as well. So mm. it became this very fine balanced thing. Could they win by the right amount? And in the end they did. It wasn't orchestrated, but it was f- most interesting to watch. Well, just on that, I wasn't going to bring this up till later, but that, that leads me to a very salient point, and a few people have made this. I reckon all these round 23 games, or the ones of some consequence on the eight, should be played at the same time. And you avoid all these potential compromises of the integrity where one side knows exactly what's required. I mean, imagine if GWS Geelong had been played at the same time as Essendon Freo, West Coast um, Adelaide and Richmond St Kilda. You know, there's no... They know exactly what they have to do. Everyone goes into it knowing or knowing no more than they need to win and win by as much as possible. And, you know, I wouldn't say it, it, it leads to... Well, it does lead to a danger of manipulation, even the perception of that. And it happens most seasons now where you go into the last couple of games of a season... Team X needs to win by this much or not lose by this much. And it could be so easily avoided. It's what they do in the EPL. Not that we have to take our cues from that all the time. But for the sake of a few... And, and the consideration has... It can only be broadcasting dollars. Now, surely one round out of 23 and a four-week final series, 
you can dispense with a few dollars to preserve the absolute integrity of the competition. I mean, I don't know. I, I, the more I think about it, the more strongly I feel about it. What do you reckon? You know, it's an argument that is brought up. It makes absolute sense in terms of fairness of the competition. And then the counter-argument is the broadcasting rights and maximising uh, the broadcasting and advertising dollar. But as I always say, until some of that advertising dollar comes directly to me in form of a check, then I don't give a stuff about the income or the broadcast deal or the advertising maximisation. I'm interested in a competition that is run equitably and it makes full sense. I had a very interesting call during the week on 1116 SEN, Rowan, and it's not a bad idea. Now, I know that you're against the bye weekend because of the unfair advantage it gives to the teams in the bottom half of the four. Mm. But there's also an argument that says that having a weekend uh, without AFL football is a free hit to other codes and it loses momentum. And the caller actually said, look, why don't they take games that have no bearing on the eight and play them in the second week? So North Melbourne, Brisbane... I know Footscray were a, Bulldogs were a mathematical chance, but I think that's a, a risk the AFL could have taken. Was there another game that had no bearing on the eight? Uh, no, I think they were the only ones. Play a couple of games. Play those games with no bearing. I think there'll be one or two at least a year. I mm. think this year was a, a an even competition unlike most others. So if there's two or three games, play them in the second week. And give us some AFL football. Not a ridiculous idea. No, well, I guess... And log- play the other ones simultaneously on the week before. Logistics, you know, you're talking about sort of having two rounds that effectively that you've got to wait until, you know, not long before they're played to schedule. Um, but, yeah, look, I, bottom line for me is the integrity of the competition's always got to be paramount. And I just think this is another example where the dollars get put before the integrity. And I, I don't like that. Let's get back to the nuts and bolts. So, Melbourne, you really got to ask yourself why they started like that. And it, I just refuse to believe it was lack of intensity or anything. It, it has to have been nerves, doesn't it? Because they knew what was at stake. They knew they needed to win. They did. Look, they've been off for a few weeks. Yeah, that, that's true. They have. They've secured a couple of wins during those periods against teams that have uh, been either substandard or played beneath their potential. They just have not been right. Uh, The midfield has relied on Clayton Oliver getting his hands on the ball. Nathan Jones, since coming back from injury, hasn't had much of a say on things. Max Gorn has been disappointing. We cut him some slack because he missed a big part of the season with a hamstring injury, but he came back and was slowly gaining momentum, but uh, that momentum ran out of puff on the weekend because he was very poor only got eight possessions and had no say on the game. I know Viney's a miss. Dom Tyson, he seems to have stagnated a bit. And their bits and pieces players became more bits and pieces than solid performers. Hannon and Harms and these sort of footballers, Alex Neil Bullen, when they were going well, they were actually having a say on the result or adding to a pretty potent forward line. And when it came time for them to stand up in the absence of Hogan on the weekend, who went down with the hamstring injury, they were found to be wanting. Interestingly, and as I said, a big disparity between... Because they had some players who played really well. Clayton Hunt capped off a really good season with a great third quarter, drove them back into the game. I thought Garlett was excellent. Petrarca, Melksham has had a very good year as a goal-kicking forward. Oliver was pretty good in that third Oliver quarter. Li- Oliver lifted. Mm. So you ask yourself... At the bottom end, what's going on? Salem is a is a curious player for me. There's something not a hundred percent rounded in his game, and I'm wondering whether it's it's speed, whether it's quickness of mind. But he's often second to the punch. Look, I, I reckon they have to make finals next year. Disappointing, but it's probably a, the hallmark of a side that's still uh, maturing. I think. I mean, I, I tipped them to finish eighth. They've finished ninth. Um, and I reckon if you have a look at their season, the, you know, the, the best was really good, but they were erratic right throughout. And, you know, the, the ifs and buts, you don't just look at that first quarter on Saturday. You look at 
Um, the loss to Fremantle early in the season, I, I covered that game, and I remember, you know, they shouldn't have lost that, and they did. They lost to North Melbourne twice. Um, they lost to Hawthorne when Hawthorne were pretty dismal. You know, so they they dropped the games that they shouldn't have dropped, and that to me probably indicates maturity more than anything. And I I'd expect them to build on this. Look, in the long run, there's an argument, and it's probably hard for Melbourne fans to accept this right now, but. I think there's a fair argument that missing out might actually be better for them than making it in in terms of just instilling a bit more hunger and learning from your errors and and just improving that um, percentage again next year so it translates into a more dependable, reliable side that doesn't just limp into the eight. It actually goes in in a position of strength. Well, they would have limped in, and we've seen how detrimental to the following season getting thrashed in one final is it. It's happened to Essendon once, it happened mm. to Richmond, and the follow-up was um, that of a, a, a staggering boxer. You know, a, a Richmond followed up that annihilation at the Adelaide Oval. Wasn't that the next year where they uh, lost most of their first 11 games? So this is... No, that was actually, they. well, they lost to Carlton and then 2-14, and they lost most of, the, most of the first half. Again, a disappointing <clears throat> finals campaign. Yeah. Uh, I think you're right, limping into the finals. Had Adelaide kicked two more goals, Melbourne would have made the finals in pretty poor shape. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Just quickly, the other side of the coin, West Coast make it. I think it's fair to say there's probably less respect for them as a premiership threat than most finalists I can remember. So they've won 12 games. Nine of the 12 wins have been at Subiaco. Um, I guess the upside for them is one of the road wins they had was against Port Adelaide in Adelaide. They'll beat Port. You reckon? Yeah, it's a big call. Yeah, Port Adelaide, if they're not beating up on teams, they're losing to teams. One win against final eight opposition, round one against Sydney, when Sydney, without Heaney, without Papley, without various other players, we know how poor their start to the year was. That's their only win against top eight opposition. And I really like them on the weekend, West Coast. McGovern is a serious player. I think he can cut off a lot of the service that Dixon would normally latch upon. And you know what? Sam Mitchell just showed in big games, there's still football in that wily champion. Gee, he was good. His ball usage was superb. And I'm tipping an upset. I reckon they'll beat Port. Well, I thought the one really important uh, standout for him... In, in this game was uh, Jack Darling. I yeah, mean, he's, he's, he, he's very flighty, but when he fires, I thought early on particularly, he really set the tone. And, and Kennedy, his kicking was off. Yeah. And they still yeah, they still got the job done. Look, they're potent up forward, but it, it sort of comes down to the amount of delivery and the quality of the delivery. So I'm still pretty sceptical. How about, how about this? They had a player who played a pretty abysmal 21 21- and a half games this year. I know what you're going to say. Lewis Jetta. <laughs> he was yeah. good in that second half. Yeah, no, he, he was really important in just the pace and the run. Absolutely. Wasn't he good? Abs- absolutely. And, no. and I must say, there was a couple of great moments. Charlie Cameron ran him down. Yeah, and then and he, he ran, yeah, ran Charlie Cameron And, down. and it, was a, it was a big moment in the game. So, no, so look, credit where it's due. Other end of the eight. Now, we've said, both of us, I think, have agreed for a few weeks only three teams could win it. Adelaide, GWS, Sydney. I've had a lot of people asking me after the events of the weekend, do you revise that? And that was more in the context of Geelong. But, yeah, look, I, I think, I, well, you have to revise it, really. You, Geelong and Richmond, you finish top four, you have to be a decent chance of winning a flag. One now, of them is in the preliminary final. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, correct. Um, I reckon they've both got GWS covered. Yeah, I wouldn't say that. But, I, look, I'll say this about the Cats. In a funny way, the suspension of Dangerfield and then the injury to Selwood has almost been the making of them. I think it really threw down the gauntlet to... Well, Sam Managola's been pretty good all year, but I reckon he's gone to another level in the last three weeks. The one guy who his failure to have a good year has hurt them, but I think he's really come good in that same time, is Cam Guthrie. He's got, he's got plenty of pace. Uh, he's been getting the ball. I had a look at his numbers. The five games before the last three he was averaging 14 touches a game. You just can't survive as a midfielder with that little ball. 
the last three weeks he's averaging more than 22 disposals per game. So that's been huge for them. And I think the ruck worker Zach Smith's pretty pivotal to them as well. I still would insist with the Cats that if they're to win three finals against quality opposition, Motwop has to fire. And I reckon, you know, it's strange because he's not experienced, but I think Cocker too has to come in and play well. And I think if those two can play well and those other things we mentioned are sustained, they have to be a chance. I reckon Richmond will maul them in the first final. Do you? Yeah, look, uh, when Richmond went down to Geelong, Geelong had a lot of players missing. Richmond yeah. were favourites and I tipped Geelong because that narrow ground did not allow those Richmond forwards the space to move in. They're sharp at the moment, Richmond. They're too fleet-footed for Geelong. And I really think that they've got... Too much zip. For me, Geelong's big problem is a defence at the drop of the ball. Well, that is, um, it's too big. Yeah, yeah. Well, they coped all right down there with it, though, didn't they? I mean, Buse, but, but Buse they play that ground well. Uh, Buse is a genuine small defender. I know he's not, like, really small, but, yeah, he, but I he, think he plays well as a small defender. Did you see him against Collingwood at the MCG? Uh, I didn't see a lot of that guy. He kicked a great goal. There was a smother, and he kicked a great goal, but he was found out trying to defend space, the bigger pockets. Look, they know how to play that Simmons Stadium. It's narrow, and it allows them to get into numbers at the drop of the ball defensively, and I reckon that they get separated a bit at the MCG. And if you can play fast football against them, uh, they can get cut up. And I reckon Richmond will have it all over them. Well, I'll give you one more. I know you're not big on numbers, but they've beaten them. Cats have beaten the Tigers the last 13 I occasions. That. Eight of them have been at the MCG, so they've had their they've had their measure there. Now we'll we'll just run through some more quickly. Um, Bombers. So they're in their first final series for three years. Um, that deserves some praise. Yeah, it's a good effort. People seem to be th- thinking I'm really down on the Bombers, and I'm not. I think it's it's great that they've made finals. I do think they could have developed more kids for longer periods this year, but, you know, they wanted to make finals, and they have. How far can they go? I don't think they can go that far. I thought, you know, I thought the Frio win was just a win, to be honest, against a side that's really struggling. They've limped into the finals. Their, yeah. their form in the last month has been questionable. Mm. They were not able to uh, take Fremantle out of the equation for most of the afternoon which is surprising. To me they've got three or four players in that team. Look, Fantasia is key to them. Oh yeah, no doubt. It's key to them posing questions to opposition teams because they've got this forward line that is Hooker, Stewart and Danaher which is great and then at the drop of the ball it was really Dangerous with Fantasia, Green to an extent, and Mac Tip when he's down there. Yeah. Now without Green and Fantasia, Laverde is not quick enough. He's not mobile enough. No, he's struggling. Um, Myers is not quick enough or mobile enough. There are some sort of heavy-legged players in that team, and then I know they're playing at the SCG in the first final, but between Watson, Laverde, Myers. And unfortunately, Collier just he just isn't sure enough. He his I've hands never, are, he fumbles. His I've hands been, aren't good enough. I know. I don't know what's happened there. In fact, I heard a theory during the week that he actually has very small hands. Well, it looks like <laughs> he's got small hands. <laughs> it's true. It's not a joke. Um, but but he oh, was, you know who had tiny hands? Who? Donald Trump. Dale Waitman. Really? Well, it didn't hurt his ball handling clearly. And his feet. Do you uh, know the, in his first game of league football? He bought a pair of kids Adidas at MSD. Really? On my life. <laughs> the flea. He's, he wears a size six boot. Really? Well, look, Collier's ball handling hadn't been an issue. I didn't think in his last season. Did his hands freak? Um, he's, he's struggled all year. He has really it's struggled that, all year. Ball handling, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. No, he's, he's as fumbly as I've seen a bloke that's played a full season. So, look, I think they'll struggle to get past week one, to be honest. They're um, playing a pretty good team, too. Uh, they are. They are. And, look, they should have beaten them in, in that previous game. But that I, I maintain in that game, Sydney dominated that for three quarters and didn't really put them away. So, uh, look, it'll be interesting to see how it pans out. Just one thing on an Essendon player. Yeah. You can't beat football smarts. They've got a player who I reckon is pretty much done and dusted. But he, he's got her. St- yeah, but he can still play because he knows where to be. That was one of his best games of the season. He understands where to be. Yeah. 
you know, when he's bending over or chasing the ball, yeah. he's really susceptible. But he doesn't put himself in those positions very often. Yeah. No, he did. He, I thought he did the quarterback sort of role really well. And, yeah, yeah look, he's he's still value for him, no question. It, look, Joe Watson was terrific today. He was very good today. I thought. He was very good um, on the weekend. Yeah. So, look, you know, they're... <laughs> They could cause a surprise, but to me it would be a big surprise, particularly given that Sydney's won 14 out of 16 games. Now, just quickly, GWS, we've said they're one of the three teams that can win it. How much doubt does that performance throw in your mind? Oh, that made me think they can't win it. I'll tell you why. Off the back of one? One performance? Well, they weren't great the week before against West Coast. No, they weren't. They had been great the two weeks before that, but that's in a bigger, in a nutshell, that sort of sums up my reservations with them. You know, their best game in the last six weeks, I reckon, was against the Western Bulldogs. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Mumford didn't play. Yeah. He is really struggling. He yeah, is he's... struggling to get. You see, Mumford's great strength was always rucking and then being part of the midfield. Yeah. He is really struggling. After a ruck contest, he's struggling to bend over. The ball's gone before he's. Um, drawn his next breath. That is a very different dynamic. He didn't play against the Bulldogs. Yeah, Dawson, Dawson Simpson, Simpson did. And he played well. But you're not, they're just not going to drop Mumford for Dawson Simpson, are they? They're not, but it just shows that one of their key players is struggling. They have yet to work out how to play Lobb and Cameron and Patton in the same team. Mm. Johnson really... Should yeah. have played his last game of Gee, football. That's a big selection pose of that one. It certainly is. Devon Smith is struggling. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, the Johnson question, I mean, he basically came back in for DeBoer, <clears throat> who'd been doing pretty well. Done his job. And we've had this discussion a lot of the year about when they had a few role players, they were getting the job done even when they had injuries. There's a theory, and it, it's, it hasn't been disproved, that when all the stars come back, there's too much leaving it for someone else going on. Yeah. And and you really do still look at them and think, as a team, they're not as good a team as the other contenders. They're, they're, a, they're, better, a, team. they're a better collection of talent. But it, again, comes back to that talent versus team. The only player against Geelong who could walk off the ground with his head held high was the hard-working Callum Ward. Yeah. Who, yeah. Whose output is very consistent. Brett Deledio's good news. He seems to be finding more of the ball each week, so that's a positive for them. Yeah. But they've got a problem in the back line. All right, we'll do, you, look. do you know who that problem is? Uh, um, Heathshaw's ball usage yeah. has become wild. Yeah. And his problem is his game is based on building on itself. Now, up till last year, he was the only player they'd go to to get the ball out of the back line. Mm. Now it's Wilson... Um, Zach Williams yep. when he plays back there as a second or third option just sweating on leftovers he's not much chop yeah no look they've got some interesting decisions ahead of them I think now very quickly because we've got to wrap this segment sure. up the other two uh, Port and Adelaide I'm not worried at all about Adelaide oh no they're fine in Perth uh, you know Walker Talia yeah, come back in Greenwood comes back in they've got an interesting poser what's that Seedsman yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, you know, he offers some run, doesn't he? I <laughs> just see that goal he kicked. Yeah. He offers, he offers some real dash. They've probably got enough. He probably doesn't force his way in, but I think they're richer for the last two losses. The loss against Sydney, no problems, and mm. they'll integrate some key players back into that team. And the other Adelaide team. Uh, I'm, look, I mean, Gold Coast are a rabble, no doubt about it, but, you know, they, they did what they had to do, and I thought they were impressive the week before against the Bulldogs. So I'm not dismissing them, and I know you said before you think West Coast will beat them. Yeah, I should say can beat them. Yeah. I, I think Port have been undersold a bit. So, I, look, I don't think they're in the same class as the leading contenders, but... Capable of maybe getting part into, well, at least week two, I would have thought. You know, if they lose in the first week of the finals, everybody will say that they've done nothing this season, beaten up on teams beneath them and had a favourable fixture. There's more to them than that. And some of the young players that they've thrown in, Marshall, etc., at the end of the year, mm. give them great 
cause for optimism going forward. Oh, and I think when you think about where they were too, because we, you know, everyone jumped right off and when they didn't go on with it after 2014. So no one even really considered them as finals this year. So I think whatever happens in the first week, they've done pretty well. They have, and uh, people might write them off, but uh, watch them next year. On Footyology, hot or not. Okay, pretty self-explanatory this segment. I'm starting with a hot, and it goes to Sam Minigola. Now, disclosure here, I've interviewed Sam a couple of times. I've met him. He's a lovely guy. He's one of the nicest guys in footy, really smart bloke. But that's not why I'm giving him a hot. He's gone to another level the last few weeks. I think he's been really pivotal to Geelong. Well, finishing top two. I think they needed to find people beyond Dangerfield and Selwood, and they've done it. He's got a strong body. Kicks goals too, you know, they're priceless. I mean, two and three, I think, in the last two weeks. Likes kicking a goal, can kick a goal. Strong-bodied, mature. Came into that side last season with about eight games to go and had an immediate impact. And I reckon he's just carried it on this year and been really steady. But just gone up half a cog again, I reckon, in in the last month. And he's going to be a, a, a key midfielder for them for the next five, six, seven years, I reckon. And... He had such a terrible intro to league footy uh, with injuries and, and spending time on lists at both Hawthorne and Fremantle and just not getting a chance to even play because of injuries. So uh, it's a credit to him, first, his persistence, and um, then when he's been given the chance, he's he's uh, taken it with both hands. So well done, Sam. Do you reckon his surname held him back at those two clubs? Um, why? Wasn't Menegola the... Todd Menegola, the man that they gave... Yeah, Todd's his uncle. Wasn't that the man they gave Kevin Bartlett's number 29 oh. to? <laughs> An ill-fated <coughs> AFL career that KB brings up every now and then? <laughs> it's a long bow. <laughs> All right, you're up. Uh, not hot. Powder blue umpires. I don't know why they can't just wear the fluoro yellow. Last time I checked, there are no clubs wearing fluoro yellow. So mm. it's a pretty clear, standout... Uniform, either the fluoro, go the yellow, the orange, or the green. But the powder blue, well, that just blend in beautifully with a few of the teams. And I don't know whether you watched North Melbourne versus Brisbane, but I reckon the umpires were in the play a couple of times. Yeah, no, well, that that one I can't say. I, I must admit, no, I was, actually in the play, actually I, handball too. I was I was boundary side for uh, Bulldogs Hawthorne, and and you know, part of the SEN team, and. Um, a couple of guys were going on about it. I couldn't see it. I, I didn't think there was a clash at all. And similarly today um, at Fremantle Essendon, I heard people expressing their displeasure about it. I couldn't see it. I think we're getting a little bit oversensitive about that. North Melbourne, different. But it was part of a promotion, I think, for OPSM. <laughs> well, that's exactly right. <laughs> Can't see the umpires? Yeah, Get your eyes checked. There's something Freudian about that, no doubt. <laughs> All right, look, uh, I'm going a knot, and uh, this one goes to the still reigning premiers who become the second team in nearly 20 years to miss out on finals the next year. Specifically, though, I couldn't understand the lack of intensity about their performance on Friday night against Hawthorne. Now, it may have been a remote chance, but the fact was, if the cards fell right for them, they still had a chance to play finals. And yet, that game was just absolutely... Um, it, it was so obvious, the lack of intensity from both sides, really, and you could sort of understand it with the Hawks. But the Bulldogs should have been busting a gut, and they just didn't, and uh, ended up losing the game as well. And probably sort of sums up their season. I, I reckon, you know, we just they just kept waiting for something to click. They won, I think, four of their first five games without ever playing great footy, and we sort of thought, okay, well, that's a good side. They're getting the results without playing well. But it really wasn't. In the end, it was just a sign of a side that was a, a fair way below the others. And they've got some structural issues. You know, they, they need key defenders. Um, but overall, I mean, you, you, look, I did. I wrote a piece on footyology during the week about them. And you can do all the number crunching, but I don't think any of that overrides the most uh, obvious takeaway, which is they just simply didn't have the same hunger this year. Proof of the pudding of that for me is you look at their top 10 of the best and fairest, only one player in that 10, Caleb Daniel, improved his numbers from last year. And really the only players, almost the only players on the list are in the senior side who you'd say improved would be Bailey Dale and Toby McLean, who I I think, you know, they're both going to be long-termers for him, but 
Gee, two out of, you know, 30-odd, it's not a great return. So uh, they're not. No, fair enough. I've got a hot, and he plays for your Bombers. He's an underrated recruit from the VFL, from unfashionable Coburg. He was picked up during the tough times that uh, included the Asada affair. He's a no-frills, straight-at-it, excellent disposal backman by the name of Michael Hartley that gets the job done every week. And no Michael Hurley, there was always going to be some pressure on that back line. I cannot for the life of me understand how he got dropped four weeks ago or three weeks ago in a game that the Bombers lost. But for a kid that came up through Coburg in the VFL, had about as much you know, and as much fanfare as Taralgan Greyhounds race number three, <laughs> the kid can play and he has really earned his stripes. Yeah, look, he's or done. Sash. He's done well. I think there were some. Uh, there were probably a couple of doubts about his ability to play on the stronger body key forwards. Also, his lack of rebound. But you know, not not every defender is going but to be a rebound. Be- he kicks beautifully. Yeah, look, he's an old-fashioned defender, isn't he? He yeah. spoils and yeah, look, nothing wrong with his kicking. So yeah, look, I, I think he's done pretty well and certainly deserves his place. And yes, that was a <clears throat> a baffling omission that one. I, and I spoke about it a few weeks ago. All right, not labouring the pawn on the Bombers, but I've got a hot as well. And it goes to another recruit, albeit a bit better credentialed, but James Stewart. Um, yeah, I think there are a few people at GWS with real doubts about whether he'd make it. Um, they talked about a lack of intensity, lack of application, drifts in games, goes in and out. And there's been a bit of that on display um, this year with the Bombers, but I think the signs, by and large, have been pretty good. He's very mobile. He kicks as many, probably more goals, actually, from ground level and crumbing as he does from marking. But I thought the game against Frio, when you know they most needed him to stand up because Hooker being a late withdrawal, he was terrific. I thought that was, by some margin, his best game. Ended up with four goals and probably the match winner in the end. And, and look, you know, if they ever get stretched in defence now... I think they'll feel a lot more comfortable about sending Hooker back there with Stewart up there and, and Danaher in the forward line. So he's been a great pick-up for them. And, um, you know, like, you, you take a gamble with, I guess, rejects in inverted commas from other clubs. Um, but he's going to pay off for them. He's a really, really promising key forward and uh, still plenty of youth on his side. My last is a not. For all the park footballers out there that struggle... You could have done better than a minute of football played between Melbourne and Collingwood at a key moment in the last quarter on the weekend. Now, oh, yes. now, now, Melbourne are desperate to win this game and make the finals, and Collingwood are trying to finish the season well, and the game's in the balance. Let me pick up the play. Mason Cox does well to mark the ball in the forward pocket. He then sees a Tyson Goldsack free in the gold square. And what he doesn't quite understand maybe as a import to the game is you can't like basketball lean over and grab the ball and pull it back he's actually handballed it through the point through the goals Goldsack tried to make contact one behind all clear the easiest of goals missed Tom McDonald in a panic picks the ball up and strikes it like a Bangladeshi tailender kicks it 10 meters to who Mason Cox who marks 15 meters out directly in front and then sneaks it in for a point. Now that was 30 seconds of football that I swear any of you listeners out there could have improved upon. There was only one thing missing from it, obviously. The music. The Benny Hill theme music. It was something else, wasn't it? (laughs) And I'm sure as we speak, someone is working on that for one of the cavalcade of footy shows. All right, let's move on. On Footyology, talking top 22s. Okay, decision time. This is the final Talking Top 22s. Of course, the All-Australian being announced next week. Not that we need to take that as any guide. We've got our own opinions and our own explanations for those. But uh, for those not familiar with the concept, this has been a rolling All-Australian team. And some weeks we've made, I think the most changes we made was four in one week. Um, We've had a couple of twos and there's been change every week. But it's uh, down to tin tax time, finally. This is a uh, final game. And so, basically, anyone who's out now is out for good. Yep. And anyone who's in, likewise. So, 
I'll run through the existing side again from the back line. Jeremy Howe, Alex Rance, Rory Laird. The halfbacks, Elliot Yo, Jeremy McGovern, Sam Doherty. Centres, Josh Kelly, Dustin Martin, Matt Crouch. Half forwards, Robbie Gray, Lance Franklin, Marcus Bontempelli. Full forward line, Eddie Betts, Josh Kennedy, Joe Danaher. The Rucks, Paddy Ryder, Paddy Dangerfield and Tom Mitchell. Interchange, Seb Ross, Luke Parker, Michael Hurley and Clayton Oliver. So, are we going to change that 22? I think the back line's set. Uh, well, look, all all of those six, Howe, Rance, Laird, Yo, McGovern, Doherty, all played pretty well again. Yeah, no they, reason to change. And they've earned their spot in the team. Now, the centre across, line... Across the middle, they've had a brilliant season. Yeah, Josh Kelly was disappointing against yeah, the Cats, but he's, yeah, you he's can't leave brilliant. him out. Martin's Martin. And Matt Crouch... I'm falling in love with this bloke. What oh, is a ripper. 45, was it, against the Eagles? Yep. And actually, Brad, Brad's <laughs> taken his lead now, too. What did he get? 40. 42. Sloan, 38. That's got to be the most possessions by a pair of brothers ever in a game, I'd surely. I'd like to think so. Surely. Um, what did Sloan have? 38. Well, he Ooh. was better than those those two because he had 14 clearances and was brilliant. Okay. Well, we'll just file that away because at the moment, Rory wasn't our 22, but uh, he went out a couple of weeks ago. So the, the forward setup, Gray, uh, I think he's the second leading small forward goal kicker in the comp. Buddy, <laughs> you'll get throw him out after 10 goals. Now, Bontempelli worries me a bit, Finey. I reckon he's gone off the boil a bit, as has his team. I reckon he's played himself out of the All-Australian team. You reckon? Yeah, I do. Yeah, okay. Look, I know Toby Green's had his moments, mainly indiscretions. Yeah. But he was good against Geelong. He's been good even when the team's been down. I thought his three goals were... You know, it was basically Toby Green or bust in the end. Well, we we were penalising him for lack of games, weren't we? And yep. and that was his own fault. But when he's there, he's very important to him. It was a pretty gutsy performance too. He got a real whack, whack didn't in the he? ribs. Yeah, well, I thought they were busted. Yeah, well, I think the the callers did as well. But he soldiered on, kicked three, um, and he's you know, like if they're going to win, a, if they are going to win a flag, he's going to have to play well on it. So I agree that he's pivotal and. Look, I guess size-wise, having a look at that forward setup, you've it all it perhaps gives it a better balance with Green because you've got uh, Franklin Kennedy and Danaher as your talls, um, Eddie Betts as your small, Gray, you know, medium size but plays as a small, and then Green's probably another genuine small. So I, I like the balance of that. Yeah, so I we, put Green in. So we're happy with Green in for the Bont. Yep. Um, you know, sorry, Bont, but I mean, you did win a premiership medallion last year, so be happy with that. Now, full forward line quickly. Uh, there's certainly a feeling Eddie's dropped off a bit over the second half of the year. You don't want to put the guy in with the most goals per game average. Oh, uh, has he? He's got well, he's got forty. No, no, no somebody else. Oh, the player who's averaged most goals per game this, this season. Yeah. Uh, who am I missing? Oh, who am I not thinking of? As a small forward. Mid, mid to small. Who is it? Jacob Townsend, two games. Oh. <laughs> two games, 11 goals. Very good. Who would have seen that coming? <laughs> Actually, just on that, I mean, you've got to. I wonder if they can find a place for Josh Caddy. Well, it's sort of Caddy, Castagna, or Jack Graham. And I really like Jack Graham, so yeah. watch this space. Yeah, interesting one. Because remember Richmond when they played North in the elimination final, uh, what was that, two years ago? Very controversially left out um, Lennon and Lloyd. Yep. And I think they regretted it. Cause, uh, so, they, yeah, look, they might stick with the youth. That'd be interesting. Anyway, I digress. So, Betts, um, he's, look, 49 goals from 21 games. He's the best small forward. Yeah, I agree, over the, over the course of the year. Um, so, yeah, look, I'm happy with that. The ruck division, I'm absolutely happy with. I think Ryder ends up being the All-Australian ruckman. Oh, he will be. Yeah. Uh, Dangerfield's Dangerfield. And Tom Mitchell's just... Tom Mitchell's Tom Mitchell, an absolute ball magnet, and I reckon he's got to be in there. Um. So, look, the interchange. Maybe there's a couple of questionable ones here. Ross, Parker, Hurley, and Oliver. Oliver really good again, I thought, when it mattered. Uh, Hurley, yeah, people might have their doubts about him, but I I reckon he came good from about round three, and he's missed the last two. I don't reckon that's enough to squeeze him out. I reckon I know what they'll do with the All-Australian. What? They'll put a second Ruckman on the interchange. Yeah. Uh, Cruz has had a fantastic season. Yeah. And I just think 
We don't have to do that. Yeah. We've gone with one ruckman every week, and that's been our choice. Well, theoretically, who is our... Oh, Joe Danaher can be our backup ruckman. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. no, I'm happy with that. Okay, yeah. so basically we're deciding then. In is Toby Green and Rory Sloan. Well, I'd put Sloan in for Seb Ross. Yeah, I'm happy with that. I'm happy with that. He was your boy, Seb Ross, but I was prepared to go with your judgment. Um, so Green and Sloan come in for the Bont and Seb Ross. And yep. we have our final top 22 of the season. Just having a look at club representation. Uh, Eagles have done pretty well. For yeah, they've, they've done well. Three players. Just scraped in. Adelaide have got how many? Weird, Crouch. Eddie Betts. Eddie Betts. Port Adelaide have got a couple. Port have got Gray and Ryder. Uh, Essen have got a couple, Danaher and Hurley, uh, Tigers, Ransom Martin. Yep. Yeah, it's a pretty good spread, isn't it? No, I'm pretty happy with that team. Yep. All right, well, if you've got any thoughts on that team, uh, where did we go wrong, where did we go right? Actually, uh, they've got four Adelaide because they've got Rory Sloan in. Uh, and that's fair, fair enough. They're top of the well, ladder. And have been top of the ladder all, all the year, just about. So I think it reads right well. Did we get it wrong? Did we get it right? Are we out of our freaking minds? Uh, just... Leave a comment there. You'll find the 22 written out underneath um, this podcast, actually, on the Footyology website, footyology.com.au. So very happy to get your feedback, and it will be responded to. You mark my words. Just on that, I reckon we'll get 20 out of 22 matched up with the All-Australian. And what will the other two be? I've got a feeling they might play a second Ruckman. They might use a second Ruckman. Yeah. Um, and just to squeeze an extra midfielder in, Eddie Betts or might be squeezed out. They might put Gray in the pocket mm. and throw another mid in. I'm going with our side, Finey. On Footyology, Media Watch. All right, time for the controversial bit. Uh, well, it has sort of been working out that way, Media Watch. Um, seems to be popular. I must say I'm... Quite surprised at how many punters out there have an interest in the football media. But um, we own Deploys. Having said that, I don't think today's edition is necessarily a controversial one. It's certainly a sad one, though, Finey, because I think it's only fitting that we should talk about the very sad and far too early passing of one of the greatest football and sporting commentators of my lifetime, Drew Morfitt. When I heard the news on, and I heard it because I'd woken up, spent time with the kids, got in the car, and heard a reference to Drew Morford that suggested you could extrapolate that he'd passed away, I actually had a function at the Ormond Football Club, and I sat in the car park for 15 minutes till the news came on to wait for the sad confirmation, because it was really a say-it-ain't-so moment for me. I'd, I'd met him, and just... Loved his presence. Well, there's not many people in the footy media who haven't dealt with Drew at some stage because he, you know, he did a lot of work and um, not just for the ABC, really, you know, Channel Seven, and but he really broadened his repertoire. I, th- I think in the last ten years of his career, and you and I have both been fortunate on SEN to do long form interviews with him. Uh, you did one with Jeff Poulter. Yep. I did one uh, on Jeslinko You Beauty. I think it was when half, yeah, half was still hosting. And um, just fantastic hearing a bloke, a bloke like that with so many anecdotes and so many great sporting memories. But, you know, the other reason it was a shock, and, and like you, I, I woke up, I saw it on Twitter on Saturday morning, and I just couldn't believe it. And when I saw that Drew was 69, I thought, Jesus, was he? Because he's one of those blokes who always seemed young, didn't he? he Peter Pan. Had, yeah, well, he just had a, you know, look, he, he, was a, he was a real extrovert and life of the party, but... Had you ever seen him without a smile on his face? No, those, no, never, never. Just a smile. Whether or not, when he saw me, it was a finey, you know, it, yeah. it engendered a smile, but he just was a smiling bloke. Yeah, and, and it made you think of a bloke who, even after all those years, was just rapt to be doing the job he was doing and, and sort of realising all the time how lucky he was to be doing it. And uh, it was interesting, you know, I'm sure you've had this conversation with him too on, on JYB, he was talking about how, you know, he started in Sydney and got sent over to um, Perth and um, really got 
sort of mentored in in the finer points of Australian rules football, and um, yep. you would never have guessed that by the time he came to you know fronting the winners and calling for the ABC, um, he he seemed to have it nailed. You know, so, there was just something, and I know you want to talk about his style of commentary and mm. uh, how it's been lost a little bit, but I mentioned this to him privately, mm. then I mentioned it to him during that interview you referred to with Geoffrey Poulter. I loved, and I used to say to him, yours is the last of the well-tended-to uh, and articulate accents of the past generation, I'm probably talking two generations ago, that well-spoken, slightly English-affected um, accent of his, he, he certainly didn't have a, a you know, a big strine accent, he, he wasn't one of those real ocker footy commentators, he spoke with a beautiful, almost clipped Australian English accent that I loved. But not not that sort of faux English accent. No, no, no. It's just how he spoke. He was, he was, a well-spoken commentator in a sea of, uh, and I'm probably as much default as anybody of, Ocker, of you know downright Ocker speaking footy people. Well, it's not something that they teach now, is it? You know, and and beautifully you, spoken. Well, you know, you've you and I have both sort of fallen into radio in a way and th- yep. there's no real formal training and look, he, had, you know, he had craft didn't he yeah yeah I mean I you know I don't know about you we're all a bit self-conscious about our voice and I know mine's pretty twangy and ochreish sounding at times and um but yeah you're right yeah his voice was quite seductive wasn't it it made you want to hear more of it welcome but, to the winners yeah, yeah yeah and of course there was always his Fantastic wardrobe. I mean, like, yeah. does anyone talk about the winners of the late seventies without some reference to Drew's wing-killed collar or the shirts or the the afro? You know, like he, he looked like he, if they made an Australian version of Mod Squad, he could have been the guy with the afro, couldn't he? Yeah. And woolen suits, very lustrous hair. Yeah, beautiful. <laughs> so, look, you know, and and I hope this is coming across. He, he was he, what you saw was what you got. He was just a genuinely. Uh, fun-loving, likeable guy who, you know, would always sort of brighten up a room, lift a room with his presence. And and something that I don't think either of us were fortunate enough to be party to, but apparently great fun in the nights where you had to stay interstate over, yeah. you know, good fun, to, good fun to go out for a, a wine with or a beer or a feed. Yeah. Do you think, I mean, there was something, I don't know, I don't want this to sound macabre, but... If there's any sort of comfort, I guess, for his friends and family or whatever, it was the way he passed oh, yeah. away. Tim Lane mentioned it. Yeah, well, I, th- I think that's the way you'd want to go, isn't it? You know, right at home, surrounded by all the things you treasure the most, doing what you love doing. Bang. You, you know, and a you know a glass of red and his his dogs with him, and you know he's watching um, watching the footy with his uh, his wife Kaz, and she went to bed and. Um, Hopefully, and it appears to be the case, you know, very painless and, um, you know, I guess in a way we'd all like to pass that way. But Quickly on to his next appointment. Yes, yeah. I, look, I, I think it's important, though, that we discuss his professional legacy. And it always reminds me, you know, when, when someone from the older generation in sports media passes away and as you get older, finally, I'm sure you're familiar with this, it happens too frequently. Um, but it always makes you sort of assess, you know, the big picture, why they were good and where they fitted in and comparing them to today's model. And I've got to be honest, I don't, I don't think there's many people who are real footy heads like us who don't think that the commentary of yesteryear on TV, I stress, not radio, was superior 20, 30 years ago to how it is today. And that shouldn't be the case. Now, what made Drew such a good commentator? For me, it was the obvious passion he brought to the game. Like, he loved what he was doing, and he loved the sport. It shone through. It wasn't manufactured. Secondly, the voice, which you just described brilliantly. Thirdly, his use of uh, silence and atmospherics as part of the big picture. 
And that contrasts very favourably with this incessant need a lot of callers have today to fill every spare second with voices um, and, and words. And there are times when that's the last thing you want. And that was the subject of my rant last week, wasn't it? Um, it's so timely in a way. But he just knew. And you have to have a good understanding of the game to be able to do that. And he had it down pat. So that, that for me, was what made him a great caller. Now... But it begs the question, why aren't more callers of today like that? Is it because they are instructed not to be like that? Is it just the way commentary has evolved and the guys who pick up the baton don't necessarily look at the example of their forebears? Why has this happened? You know, he moved from the ABC to Channel 7. Yep. And he had a time where he was prominent there and he quickly got gobbled up by... The hysterical and the theatrical. You know, Channel 7... Yeah, when did that happen, do you reckon? Oh, this, is, this is interesting. I'm not quite well, sure they got the, the right. They got, they got the rights back in 88. That's right. Um, and then... They tried to get Rex Hunt involved. Yeah. And, and I think it had become clear. Look, no... Look, Dennis Cometti, magnificent caller. Bruce McAvaney, excellent. And I think beyond those callers, in recent times, they've deferred to entertainers in inverted commas Rex, Brian Taylor and that cost Drew Morford a prominent position at the station and it cost Sandy Roberts as well and only Sandy's been resurrected in the last couple of years by Fox Football but I can think of another good example there and this guy it happened too earlier but Pete Donegan you know, Peter yeah. Donegan's a fantastic sporting commentator Yeah, so I think they felt that they had their class commentators and maybe for their second and third games mm. they wanted something out of the um the theatrical playbook well this to me is one of the great sort of uh misunderstandings of the audience the sporting tv sporting audience today and i think look i could be wrong here but i get the impression just talking to people i've spoken to bt about this there is a view that, and I think he subscribes to that view, that it is entertainment. It's not just about sport. You are doing an entertainment product. My response to that is that I don't think that brings new people to the product. All it does is annoy your existing core audience because they're used to they're used to the semantics of broadcasting being adhered to in a certain way and to have things shaken up and basically bordering on their intelligence insulted at times. But it's not just that. It's the self-indulgence of it now. And a good example of this, and look, I'll preface this by saying I think Bruce McAvaney has been a wonderful, wonderful caller and his attention to detail and his research has been great. But I don't think he is quite as good as he was. And I know. It's a, he's a different caller since he came back after the break. Well, I think the... The uh, best example, one of the best examples of that came with Buddy Franklin's goal against Adelaide. Now, once upon a time, Bruce would have probably let the, the, the noise do a bit of a talking, would have said the right thing at the right moment. On this occasion, what he channeled was something about, help me, Dennis. You know, and that sort of self-referencing, I know it drives me insane, but I, I suspect it drives a lot of the, the punters out there insane. And it's an example, too. Like, who are the the execs and the producers of these broadcasts who continually tell these guys you've got to ham it up and you've got to joke among yourselves. Well, no one's saying you can't have fun and I like to think on SEN, finally, we do that. We have the right mix of seriousness and lightheartedness but you like to think that the fun you do have isn't too clubby and too in because there's nothing worse than excluding the viewer and that's often how it sounds to me. You know, just I want to add to that and say that I think Drew, like a Pete Donegan, got drowned out by special comments. The 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 growth of special comments. The growth and the deference to past players. So to have you know hammering at you, Cameron Ling and on the boundary and Wayne Carey and Luke Darcy and. In the end, the commentary is almost lost. It almost begs the commentator to be larger than life. So somebody who is simply doing their job 
is lost in the throng of comments and uh, you can almost um, imagine them jumping up and down saying, I'm here, I'm here, the game's back on. And maybe for a Drew, who never really altered from his given style of uh, not subdued, but just calling the game, he got drowned out by those special comments. That's a, no, that's a really good point. And you think back now, it was probably until the mid-90s, the standard TV commentary team was two callers, one special comment spike, and then from the late 80s, someone on the boundary. You think about now on those Friday night broadcasts, what have they got? They've got two callers, two comments, two guys on the boundary. You know, they'll get a guest, a, a current player in there to put yep. in his two bobs worth. Finals, they'll increase it again. Um, and the special comments blokes, I think, feel the need to, and again, I wonder if they're being told this, every possible moment there's a break in play, come in with something. Well, you don't always have to come in with something. And you know the other thing, actually, I'm just, I'm just thinking on the run here, and this isn't about commentary per se, but I reckon if I reckon Channel 7 have turned down the effects mics and turned up the volume of the callers. My evidence of this is, you know, we talk about the loudest roars at the MCG, and I know whenever this question's asked, I think this way, and I've heard a lot of other people bring this up, Mark McCurry's goal in the 1993 preliminary final against Adelaide. The roar is so loud that it actually distorts the sound. The speakers rattle. I reckon there's a lot of games now that Seven do where the crowd, it seems like the crowd is incredibly quiet for a big crowd. Why would they do that? Yeah, I, I, I haven't thought about it, but it resonates. And the one thing I'd say about special comments, men, and their relationship with the commentator, you know that the lunatics have taken over the asylum when this happens, and just count how often... It does occur where the special comments men are actually making special comments about the commentator's jokes or the commentator's style of commentary or what the commentator said. It shows a level of self-indulgence that ignores the game. And just count how many times special comments people are talking about the comments they themselves are making or the commentator's making. They're not special. They're far from special. Yeah, no, that's a good point. The other thing, too, I noticed with this is, and we could have a whole, in fact, I think we should probably have a whole other discussion on this. The concept of the special comments guy is to break down the intricacies of the game for the layperson. Now, this is where they're contradictory because they say, we want the layperson, the non-footy head, to be interested, more interested in the broadcast, so we're going to make it more entertainment. Yet at the same time, you need a commentator to break things down and simplify them. I find more and more special comments blokes now actually seem to go the other way. They're making things more complicated than they need to be and, I think, confusing the audience. Just on that, who, who do you think the best special comments man is? I've got one that I've always... TV or radio? TV. I've got one that I'll I've... think about it. Will you go with yours? Well, I've always liked Jared Healy. <clears throat> I've always felt that he's consistently provided the background information to the game that is commensurate with his standing in the game and doesn't overstep the mark. He's certainly not there trading trading cheap jokes. Yeah, I, no, no, I'd agree with that largely. I think Jared occasionally can focus on stuff that's sort of too long gone at the expense of what's happening now. Um, I think in TV terms, and I stress here, radio is very different, but... My favourite special comments guy on TV is probably Jason Dunstall. Now he he gets a bad rap, Jason, about his you know his lack of um, friendliness and whatever. But yep. as a, no, I think he's very good. As, oh, he is very good. No, he's very incisive, and I think he's not one who indulges in the ego backslapping stuff. And I think he also knows not to talk too much, yep. not to belt you over no, the no, head I with like his it. observations. So yeah, off the top of my head, he's he's one I'd think. Yep. But look, yeah, we probably need to wrap this up. But final thoughts on Drew? You know, there's very few people that will have a lasting imprint on the people they meet, the work that they've done, having done it with as much joy as Drew Morford. Normally people in this industry get where they are by clambering over, over others. Not so Drew Morford. He loved what he did. He was loved. 
and he achieved plenty. Yeah, no, well, well spoken. And look, I'd, I'd just finish off by saying I think um, he was fun as a person, and I think that spirit of fun infected his commentary. And that to me is really important because as sport gets bigger and the the coverage gets more saturated. There's a tendency to make it bigger and more, uh, you know, tr- treat it with a sort of gravitas that it doesn't always deserve. And sports should always be about fun. And I, I think you always had a sense, you know, with those big moments that, yes, they were massive and, you know, game-changing or whatever, but it was fun. You were watching sport and you were hearing Drew call it and you were both having fun. And he was involved, just as a final piece of uh, Drew trivia, in the game's most famous or infamous piece of ersatz commentary. What's that? When Brett Allison was awarded Mark of the Year... In 91, yeah. ...at the MCG, yeah. that game wasn't covered. I know. <laughs> so they went to Drew Morford <laughs> yeah. to overlay some commentary with some crowd effects yeah. as though the cameras were really there yeah. and rolling. Yeah, and he, he he fudged it pretty well from memory. I think it was, oh, Alison, what a mark! Krasiska there! It was over <laughs> yeah. Gavin Krasiska. when they were building the Southern Stand, wasn't yeah. it? I remember there was debris in the background. Yeah, well, look, there's been a few packages of, of Drew's best, and they'd be long packages if they got everything because he was a consistently good caller for a, a long, long time. And, um, look, you know, um, deepest condolences to his family and his, his close friends, but... He's left an amazing legacy, and uh, he'll be sorely missed by all of us. And I would consider him the caller of the Waverley era. Yeah, good call. No, no, pretty synonymous with that ground. Yeah. All right, look, uh, time to move on. But um, again, sad weekend for all of us in the sports media, but certainly a legacy that will be very fondly remembered. Rest in peace, Drew. On Footyology, Roco and Finney's rant off. Rightio, we're firing up. It's that time again, rant-off time. Finey, are you uh, suitably fired up? Oh, I'm fired up. Okay, there's always something under our bonnet, grinding our gears. Um, I'm going to let you go first while I just work myself into an appropriate lather. So I'll count you in right now. Three, two, one, rant! Part of me is actually upset that for the last time this year, I can point my finger at the Gold Coast Suns and say, shame on you. (laughs) But didn't you hit the lows against Port Adelaide? For 91 minutes between the end of the first quarter and somewhere in the last quarter, you failed to score. Zero scoring for 91 minutes. Crawley Town, the worst team in English football, would have been ashamed of your effort. Let's be honest, there was no goalkeeper, there were no corners, there were no half chances. You actually did not threaten the goals for 91 insipid minutes of football. The wisdom of Solomon, that is your coach, surely tells him to bow out of the coach's race here and now. The man from Broken Hill is a broken man. Your team is a collection of self-centred, money-earning, jumper-hating, non-trying wimps. I don't need to name them. They're named every Thursday night. All 22 of you. Gary Ablett's been heaps scorn upon for wanting to leave the club. My God, who wouldn't want to leave the club? Gold Coast, you've got some rebuilding to do. And I suggest you start with the one organ that you all lack. A heart. Get one over, Summer, and readdress your problems in 2018. That's a decent old spray there, Finey. And genuine anger, I could feel it. You know, I was actually watching, obviously on Saturday night, there was a big game between Geelong and GWS, but I was attracted to the train wreck that was Gold Coast and just wondering how long they're going to go without scoring. And I mean not looking like scoring. You've got to really ask the question whether it's uh, retrievable, the whole situation up there, don't you? Although I guess they're, they're invested in making it work. In fact, um, Andy Maher said, he said he could be wrong, did Gil McLaughlin actually say Gold Coast would take 70 years? I'm tipping if any sporting franchise <laughs> takes... Years. Well, that's what Andy Maher said, he said. Well, that's certainly absolving... Well, that's absolving yourself the responsibility. Exactly. I thought it was probably a good, good idea, isn't it? It's someone else's problem. Yeah. As Dwayne Russell would say during a call, it makes it someone else's problem. <laughs> All right. Okay. I'm starting to get fired up now. I want you to count me in. Three, two, fire up. 
I'm pissed off about sitting in the outer finey. I never thought I'd say that. But I've been taking the opportunity to avail myself of the reserve seats I pay an arm and a leg for lately and never get to use. And I reckon they should be paying me. First off, every time you go to Etihad Stadium, it seems like there's a new group of wet-behind-the-ears security types who'll tell you something completely the opposite of what the last batch told you. Seriously, where's aisle 39 isn't too difficult a question, is it? Well, it was for one guy I asked who looked like he should have been grunting at people trying to get into whatever crappy nightclubs packing them out in King Street those days. He had customer service stamped all over his jacket too. Little did I know that meant servicing in the same way a prize bull does their business, metaphorically speaking, of course. Then I'm sitting with my sister and daughter trying to have a short conversation before the game. Stupid idea, obviously, because that would get in the way of the 5,000 ads and harebrained so-called fan engagement stunts they whack on in every conceivable spare second the game's not on, all at any splitting volume. Geez, I thought I'd been to enough metal gigs over the years to cope with a bit of noise, but this stuff would blow up even Angus Young's amps. Turn the bloody thing down, please. We're not deaf. Or at least we weren't. But most of all, what's happened to football goers? I'm not kidding. Today's crowds can't seem to sit still for five minutes before they're up out of the seats again, off to pick up another bucket of cold chips or some piss-weak strength beer in a plastic cup. Maybe that's why every other punter has to go to the toilet every 30 seconds. Have today's crowds all got chook splatters or something? In my day, finally, we just hung on. Geez, Essendon was shooting for a final spot. Do you think serious internal bloating was going to make me miss that? We hear a lot about the facilities now compared to the old days, but bloody hell, at least you could watch a game uninterrupted for a while without some bloke shoving his bum crack in your face as he tries to get past for the 25th time in the quarter. Everyone's gone soft, Finey. If you reckon you love footy, how about bloody sitting there and watching it for a change? And you club promotion people, here's an idea. SMS 1300 piss off, hashtag now, because some of us want to talk occasionally. Now that was great. Oh, I'll tell you what, I grew up on being in the outer, but it's a totally different experience now. I'm just, I can't handle it. The next person who walked past me in the last five minutes, I was going to deck him. Do you hanker for the days of standing on two steel green soldiers? Remember the old absolutely cans? And, and oh, I wasn't going to bring this up, but they had a use after you finished drinking from them too. Well, don't ever forget the late Harry Beitzel, who actually was central to having that standing bay behind the goals at the city end of the MCG turned into an all-seater because in the 1983 grand final... He commented that Essendon and Hawthorne fans were mitterating into their beer cans. (laughs) And you tell that to the kids today and and they they won't won't believe believe you. you. Okay, that's all we've got time for this week. Uh, Fear not footy fans, Fonny and I will be back with episode 7 of the Footyology podcast next week, even though there's no games on because there's still heaps of footy to talk about and we're never short of opinions when it comes to the game we love most. Don't forget to head to footyology.com.au for all latest news and views on our great game. Now, Fonny, I've just remembered, I've forgotten to um, pick out some obscure musical lyrics to uh, tie in with the final round of a season. Can you bail me out here? I can. If you look to your screen, I yes. think that Melbourne oh. I think Melbourne fans might have a little sense of deja vu or deja vu. So they've been here before. They've had their hopes dashed and I reckon they've done it again. And it's great that uh, after going with uh, Cold Chisel last week, we've got the uh, musical magnificence of Britney Spears, certainly uh, a trend-setting musical figure of our generation, Finey. We've obviously served this one up for the younger fans. So I quote, Oops, I did it again. I played with your heart, got lost in the game. Oh, baby, baby. Oops, you think I'm in love, that I'm sent from above. But I'm not that innocent. Quite appropriate, really, considering there were demons involved. They got lost in the game, all right. We'll see you next week. 